Cooking with Chopsticks. The truth about dictatorships. A podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chana. Li Wen, it's two years ago that actually the protests in Hong Kong started. Two years already. And it's one year now that the Beijing government implemented the national security law on Hong Kong. When you wrap it up, like the last two years, it's really like a fast forward in turning a relatively free society with a lot of civil rights granted by its constitution, turned or flipped into an authoritarian system. It's a tragedy going on in Hong Kong. And the latest thing that happened actually that just like is for now, the highlight of that development seems to be the closing down of, of a very famous newspaper in Hong Kong, the Apple Daily. Yeah, Apple Daily was, is a um, very controversial media. They are very critical of the mainland Chinese government because of their invasion into the Hong Kong democratic system even before the national security law was issued in Hong Kong. And then, of course, they are always pro-democratic movement. And their owner, Jimmy Lai, was a high-profile figure in the democratic movement, a leading voice in Hong Kong media against uh, Beijing. So closing down of Apple Daily was more or less kind of expected by the democratic uh, supporters. But when it really happened, it was still a very, very sad thing. In my Facebook friends' posts on that day, I saw that Apple Daily's staffs, they were standing on top of their office building. It was at night and they were waving their illuminated screen to the people who were gathering down the building to support them. And these staffs were waving their illuminated screen to the people and said, we always support Hong Kong, we love you, and etc. And people looking up to them and saying that we will always support Apple Daily. So it's a kind of very sad and moving solidarity gesture. But it's also a historical moments with the closing down of Apple Daily, there will be no other media that has the same power or influences that could counter this erosion in Hong Kong's democracy by Beijing. The, the whole development actually was, was started last year when they arrested Jimmy Lai. Yeah. And he later was, um, he was charged with collusion with foreign forces uh, under security, national security law. They, they arrested people from, from the editing office. So writers, columnists, they were charged with colluding with foreign forces by promoting the idea of foreign sanctions on Hong Kong for the implementation of the national security law. And then they froze the assets of the Apple Daily as well. It was a deadlock for the newspaper. They didn't have the funds to, to pay their staff. Uh, they could not actually get any money for whatever they did because their accounts were frozen. So they could not uh, generate any revenues anymore. Well, the last thing that happened was just they took an, away another handful of high-ranking executives from Apple Daily as well as from the mother company, from the publishing house. So they ended up with their last edition, like end of, end of June, I think it was, right? Just a, uh, a few days before China celebrated its 100th birthday of the Communist Party. 
course, financial income is one thing, but then before that, first of all, Jimmy Lai was arrested. He was on bail, according to the legal system in Hong Kong. That was. Actually designed by the British colonial government, it's like British legal system. You could go on bail, but later Chinese official media, state media said, if Hong Kong judiciary system cannot handle this case properly, then Chinese court will take over, and that led to Jimmy Lai being arrested again. Just a few months ago, and also several other people were arrested in Apple Daily, and the police has stormed Apple Daily. And at that time, it was really a high-profile event because while the police were storming the office of Apple Daily, the Apple Daily staffs were reporting it live <laughs> on their own website and social media. So it's a kind of very heroic. Battle, but obviously we see who can win. And closing Apple Daily a few days before the the one hundredth anniversary of、uh, Communist Party is a very important gesture. They have to make sure of that. The last days of the Apple Daily was accompanied by like the last sighs of of the of the democratic movement, and you could really like hear that people were highly concerned, and that they finally said, "Okay, this is the last." Opposing voice we have here actually in the city. So the acceleration, the speed of how quick this protest movement has been turned around and has been silenced, this is unprecedented. Anyway, Beijing breaks all his promises on the contracts with with the UK. Regardless of what you say to oppose the things, you have to be aware that the authorities in Hong Kong. Will charge you for breaking national security law. This law really gives the authorities an amazing reach into the protest movement. Every every kind of dissent can be silenced just arbitrarily, basically. Exactly. So it doesn't even necessarily has to do something with collusion with foreign forces or with bringing down Hong Kong government. Anything they don't like, anything they dislike, they can just charge you under national security law. Yeah, national security law is for people who criticize the legal system in China. There is a name for such a law called pocket crime or sack crime, which means anything you do could be put into this pocket or in this sack, and it includes any human behavior. Whatever you do could be illegal, could be threatening the national security because it's so vaguely defined. For example, in colluding with foreign forces, if you receive media's interview and said something critical, or even if you don't say anything critical, you just told the truth about what the government has done, they could accuse you of colluding with subversive forces. You can be put put to jail. And this national security law is now overriding the whole law system in Hong Kong because in Hong Kong the fundamental law is called Hong Kong Basic Law, which is like the Constitution for Hong Kong that has guaranteed, first of all, the division of power, which defined a modern democracy, and like protection of human rights, even of the criminals and etc. But the Basic Law is now completely overwritten. By the national security law, one of the pro-Beijing lawmakers in Hong Kong, he defended what was going on with the Apple Daily because he claimed, well, even if 
the assets were frozen, they still have enough money, he said, so they could run their operations. Wow. Uh, he didn't deliver any, any proof for his claims, but this is what he said. And he also said, well, there was the way to the courts was open for, Daily, for Apple Daily, and they did actually not utilize all their legal means to defend the development. I mean, this is like very, very cynical if you see what's going on in Hong Kong within the last 12 months, ever since this national security law has been implemented, because the, the judicial system in, in Hong Kong is, is, is totally eroded, basically. Yeah, they could just arrest you for anything. Already they have arrested 117, more than 117 people under this law, including a 15 years old. Everybody is kind of threatened. I mean, they, they only need so many cases to tell you, I'm serious, I'm coming for you. And I can come for you at anything. Kill the chicken to scare the monkey, right? Kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. This is how it is. And so, of course, the monkeys now have to shut up because, you know, we all have a family to support and uh, a future to consider. Only few people could become the martyr. So that is actually very truthfully reflecting the experience of the mainland critical thinking people. It's the same thing. Um, the thing is that in the past, if you are critical of the Beijing government, you can escape to Hong Kong, you can publish there. But the Chinese government has been trying to clamp down on that even before the, the national security law was issued. Like, for example, punishing the independent bookstore in Hong Kong, abducting the bookstore owners from Thailand and, and Shenzhen, and then force them to confess crimes on Chinese TV, or even assault the gangsters, obviously hired by Beijing to attack certain high-profile media chief editor, stab him, and etc. All this happened in the past decade. Have already created a lot of fear among the media people or people who are outspoken. But this time, it is like systematic through this law, systematically clamping down on anybody who dare to speak out. Intimidation on all levels. Yeah, yeah at all levels. I mean, on the street, as well as uh, through the legal system now, judiciary system. Let me first just explain to, to, to some people who don't know about it. Actually, everything started with the preliminaries that were taken last year by pro-democracy groups. They had a preliminary vote with a turnout of 80% to find out what are the odds at the Legislative Council elections that should have taken place last year already. And it turned out with 80% that the vast majority of Hong Kongese people actually were supporting the pro-democracy ideas. That was seen probably as a, as a major threat to the coming up elections last year that were scheduled last year. So they started actually to clamp down on the whole pro-democracy movement. So they've taken them into custody, arrested them, uh, charged them under the national security law because they postponed the, the parliamentary elections for the Legislative Council to this year, September. There's still some time left. And I think now that you see that uh, 47 of the arrested uh, were actually meant to be charged or being on court just a few days ago 
Then suddenly it was announced, no, we postpone it again. We need more time to do the investigation. Yeah. So they postponed it for, well, for the time being to even win more time to not grant any opportunity to one of these representatives of these groups to make a public point in anything. Basically, they want to shut them down till they conducted the elections in September and make it the outcome that Beijing wants it. They already have uh, overhauled the electoral system, which is now much more in favor for Beijing. And still they are afraid that you have here or there a little opposing voice uh, in the parliamentary. It is kind of an expression for the weakness of such an authoritarian system. You know, if you claim to represent people, if you claim to do the right thing, and you have a vast majority already in the lawmakers sphere, and you're still searching for any way to, to silence the last opposing voice, this is such an expression for the weakness of, of these authoritarian systems. Yeah, so many dozens and dozens of pro-democracy district councillors, lawmakers, have stepped down. Because if they are accused of committed unpatriotic acts, they would be disqualified from the office anyway, and they step down as a protest. It, it really spreads to every corner, every cell of the society. So whatever you say, wh wherever you are, whatever job you have, it threatens you. The other significant event is the ending of the June 4th or Tiananmen Massacre memorial activities in Hong Kong this year. Ever since 1989, Hong Kong has been the main center of Chinese who, to memorize the June 4th democratic movement in Beijing and the, the people who were massacred on the Tiananmen Square. But this year was the first year when they couldn't gather. In the past, there were like millions of people gathering. Of course, covering up with, uh, with, with reasons for hygiene, hygiene regulations due to COVID-19. So actually that uh, played, a, played, a, well, played into their cards, into the government's car cards. Uh, basically, come on, I mean, they do it because they don't want people to... They could uh, use this excuse, but the excuse doesn't explain exactly. why the June 4th Museum in Hong Kong was also closed. Yeah. Oh, I, I read they haven't uh, the right licenses, right? Wasn't it that that was the reason officially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why do you close down a museum for pandemic? I mean, they don't even have visitors. Uh, they can just put it online, right? But no, it's not allowed. The thing, I think recently there was someone who wrote an analysis piece about rule of law. Rule of law is something very interesting because when the West welcomed China, invited China to join the world in 1979 when Nixon invited China. There was an agenda or the goal set by the Western societies, say, let's bring China into rule of law. So there were lots of legal exchanges, like legal system staff exchanges, Germany included. So there were lots of judges, like German judges going to China, Chinese judges visiting Germany to try to allow the uh, Chinese legal system to develop itself in a democratic way. That, but after all these decades, all these experts realized that China has learned a lot, of course, from Western laws, but China has adapted. It has created its, its own legal system that is 
similar, very similar in many ways. The phrases, the phrasing, and、uh, different definition, and all these sort of procedures, similar to democratic laws. But there is always a dual system. The dual state. Dual state is there is this Jewish political scientist, Dr. Ernst Frankel, who escaped Nazi Germany. And went to this, the、uh, United States. He created the concept of dual status. So there is a state that is like operating on the com the laws that looks all normal. You know, you have business law, you have you know criminal law, and everything、it、looks all normal. But there's another state above it, which is run by the party, by Nazi Party, and now of course in China's case by CCP, that can override the common law system any time. So similarly, from the face value, China is running on rule of law, but the law is. And this is how a lot、different. of people from the industry arguing this way. Rational working、exactly. people with rational working minds from the industry, not stupid academics、uh, with an educational backlight, telling you this as an argument that look at the legal framework. It's it's pretty good. It's it's not much worse than or.、Um, um, Yeah, not much worse than Western Western legal frameworks, and yeah, of course, yeah. yeah, on paper it is, yeah. But if nobody cares about the law, and the party is above the law, I mean,、yeah. what about? It doesn't really make any sense to to implement it. Well, it gives it. No, the sense is to to give it a good image, to give it a reputation, and to still have people in place defending it in your name on behalf of your. Telling the world, well, look at it. It's not. It's it's improving. It's really improving. And you think, yeah, where is it improving? Yeah, the, on paper, it, there's new regulations, new provisions, stuff, and on going on. But in the execution, it comes down to the will of the party. This is what it is. Yeah, everything has a facade, and and、uh, something is hidden behind that, that operates completely the opposite. There are already China experts who have. Use this dual state model to analyze what is going on in China. As you said, the business and industries who are doing business in China, who are defending China,、uh, is actually suffering from the same problem because China, for example, is using WTO World Trade Organization very well. Now, China is cleverly using the WTO terms for its own benefit. And also not really fulfilling its promises with WTO, basically killing a lots of competitors from Western countries because they simply play a double game. For example, sponsoring Chinese companies and manufacturing industries with zero interest loans. You cannot compete with Huawei, for example. Huawei is getting unlimited amount of loans from Chinese banks. So they could invest a lot of money in research and development, and to purchase all the technologies globally. But Western telecompany cannot do that. But before we now go too far away from Hong Kong, twenty、um, four years ago, when the handover took place from Great Britain to China, have you been in nineteen ninety seven genuinely be、uh, convinced that? This agreement on one country, two systems will sustain for fifty years, or did you expected the development as it is today? This quick. Actually, I was surprised by the slowness of it. Oh really? 
Okay. In 97, I was already, on that year, I graduated from university. I studied international politics, and I already read books or brochures about John Force and all this failed democratic movement in China. So I was already very clear-minded about the nature of Chinese regime. Do you remember how, like, uh, the atmosphere abroad... Western leaders, Western societies, were they critical as well as you were? Your concerns, so the concerns of liberal minds in China, have these concerns been transported and perceived abroad? Or was it like calling into the wood and nobody actually responded? I think nobody knew. Nobody else have a clue. They didn't, they didn't know Hong Kong that well, except those who live in Hong Kong, the colonialists, you know, they had their time. But there's certain kind of like, sense of guilt, like Hong Kong is a colonial city, so the West colonial power should give back Hong Kong to the people that, that they belong to. And the other thing is that it was a time when the West was in this very enthusiastic mood that democracy will win in the end. The end of Cold War, the collapse of Soviet Union were, it has proved to us that democracy will prevail in the end. So China seemed to be okay, although it was only less than a decade after June 4th, but then it seems everything else is opening up. So. Maybe they will change in the end. Why, why didn't you share this opinion? Because I, I was already well educated by many Beijing intellectuals and young students in, for example, Peking University. And among them, there was a very famous dissident writer called Yu Jie, with whom I was a close friend. But later I fell apart with him because he was supporting war in Iraq that I kind of disagree with him. But when it comes to showing me what Communist Party really is aiming at, these liberal, critical-minded scholars and young intellectuals have taught me a lot. So I had no illusion that, first of all, Chinese Communist Party will try their best to hold the party's power, absolute power, unchallenged power, and they will use any means to achieve that. Think about, you know, Hong Kong being a democracy, standing right next door to show people what democracy is. It's impossible. Do you remember uh, of 1997, of the atmosphere in Hong Kong? Were people convinced? Well, one provision of that handover contract was the universal suffrage for Hong Kong people to elect their leader by themselves at a certain time. As I said, I mean, there were people who were kind of blindly optimistic. And there are Hong Kongese who were also... And there are people, of course, there are lots of people in Hong Kong that simply don't think this will matter that much. They don't believe that there will be major intervention into Hong Kong system. Their life will continue as ever because Hong Kong is rich and we have a peaceful society. So why should the party intervene too much, right? And then those who who feel very unsafe are those who carry a clear memory because lots of the Hong Kong people actually were refugees escaping mainland China, like millions of them escaped mainland China uh, during the Cultural Revolution and the turbulent revolutionary years, coming to Hong Kong uh, in extreme poverty with not a penny in there, working their way up to the social ladder, thanks to the democratic system there and the market economy. So they are those who are extremely suspicious and even hating the Communist Party's rule. 
these people and their family, uh, many of them migrated to Britain, to Canada especially, and abroad. I mean, Canada's real estate was kind of pushed up by outflow Hong Kongese before 1997. Because people were scared. So the, the Chinese refugees in Hong Kong were scared by the takeover or by the handover. Yeah, or the, the, the descendants. So they, they foreseen this kind of development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there were those who were very outspoken. I remember this uh, Hong Kong legislator who's a woman, very bold. She was a, a journalist before becoming a legislator. Then she questioned Margaret Thatcher on the press conference, asked Margaret Thatcher, how can you guarantee what is the punishing measure that Britain will adopt if communist China violates its own promise to keep the democracy in Hong Kong. Margaret Thatcher basically said nothing. There is no concrete measure. There's nothing there to punish China if China does this to Hong Kong. So Chris Patton, in his memoir called East West, is a very good book, actually. I recommended everybody to read it. Chris Patton is the last British governor of Hong Kong. Basically, Hong Kong was handed over from him to Chinese government. Chris Patton wrote in his book, with, I mean, he, at that time, he was with a very painful emotions handing over Hong Kong and trying to make sure as much as possible that Hong Kongese could keep this democratic system as long as possible. And then he wrote about conversation with those former refugees who came from mainland. And, and, and many of them were his staffs. I mean, they become the pillar of Hong Kong society. And so he was very impressed by these people. And he was very sad to see how disappointed they were with the British government, just handing over them like chickens to an authoritarian government. And Chris Patton couldn't do anything. He couldn't tell his government, look, you have to have punishing measures to prevent Beijing from eroding, changing the democ democracy in Hong Kong. So the only thing he could do is to write a book and or to give talks and supporting Hong Kong. He's still trying to do that. So now we have the Hong Kong diaspora actually trying to, to keep on fighting with this group of activists, who, some of them who have been arrested last year under national security charges. They flew the country. A handful of them made it, made it out of the country, while the rest uh, has been arrested now and is waiting for trial. I mean, they are lobbying abroad in interests of Hong Kong. This group, they issued a charter, a Hong Kong Charter 2021, they called it. They're still aiming for basically liberate Hong Kong, right? The revolution of our times. This is how they, they labeled the, the protest back then. And What, is their, what are they aiming at and what is their odds when they play the regime or play versus the regime from, from abroad? I think these young Hong Kong activists, they are just right now sharing the same fate as the June 4 activists who went into exile into the US or Taiwan and the West. It's the same thing. After June 4 many of the leaders ex went into exile from Beijing, from all over China, and then now you have Hong Kong activists who went into exile into Britain, into US, but they would never be able to mobilize enough resources to go against now the one of the most powerful government in the world. There must be kind of, a, if you just give up on your aims and your objection and of your dream to liberate Hong Kong as an activist, 
there's basically no reason anymore for you to do anything. You just can live your life and just forget about it. But I, 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 don't... I don't think so. I think this, the whole thing about speaking truth doesn't have anything to do with the results. You tell the word truth because you have to. Humans have this urge to tell the truth because otherwise it damages their own psychological health. No, exactly. I, I, I agree. I remember that when I gave a speech on China about my book and stuff and about the situation in, in dictatorships, I was also referring to the situation in Hong Kong. And someone from the audience asked me then, well, what can we do? I mean, to support that idea, the interests of the Hong Kong people. Well, the, the, I said, look, I mean, and this is why we talk about it. We, we, I think the most urgent thing is just to always keep it on the agenda, right? Put it on the agenda again and again and again. And even if the situation yeah. uh, deteriorates, just yeah. remind people in the world that it deteriorates in Hong Kong. Because then you can have, you have a, you have a glimpse of, on the real character of this authoritarian system. Because sometimes people seem to forget about it. And, and if you just, you know, bring it up again and again and again. Yeah, when more people realize what's happening, there might be a change. It's like you spread the seeds in the field and you cannot control what will grow out of it. Some of the seeds will fall into desert. Some of them will fall into the fertilized land. But it will grow somewhere people can make a change. That's how Soviet Union, former Soviet Union collapsed. And this is when you listen to Hong Kong people nowadays, like two years after the protest broke out, our perception is that people abroad regard Hong Kong as literally dead. Hong Kong is done. This, this is it. And, and these voices remind people actually to say, look, yes, we're going through a very tough time, but still we are not dead. We are living here. We are still here. And they want to remind people that the ideas and the desires of people for their own freedom, for their civil rights, is still very vivid. Yeah, I mean, this is important. Yeah, because if you shut up, then people will never know what happened. And then they cannot learn from it. I mean, look at Hungary now, look at Poland. Look at how democracy is downgrading there so fast nowadays with the advancing of but right-wing political power, you see how fragile democracy actually is. It can be gone overnight. And Hong Kong is a perfect example. Of and, Im and imagine, I mean, this, this is Poland and Hungary, which is part of the EU. And, and we are struggling to looking for means and tools to interrupt that development in our communities. So a lot of people probably think, well, how shall we change something in Hong Kong when we're not even able to influence Hungary enough or Poland enough? to take a, a turn to rule of law and, and to stick to, to democratic values. The problem is that in the past, we were only thinking about like one step, two steps and three steps. What we need now is a structural thinking. First of all, you have to see from the overall picture that democracy is now retreating. It's weakened all over the world. And we need to see this kind of urgency, the sense of urgency, the preparation, mental awareness of these facts. And then we need to think structurally how to counteract with that, how to stop enabling the invasion of the authoritarian societies. How to do that from information technology, from economic dealings, with, from our imagination of the future. And this kind of structural thinking is lacking. 
Because when whenever you say what can we do, what can we do if we do this, we'll get punished by China, by that, and etc. etc. All these sort of like very minor little calculating moves will not work because they are powerful now. Everyone has their power. Hungary has its own power in a way. If they don't cooperate with EU on certain things, EU will be, you know, fucked. For example, on refugee issues and etc. etc. Turkey, it's the same thing. So. If we think about measures, we seem to be kind of stuck. But if we think from structural perspective, for example, economically relying too much on one totalitarian country like China, or relying on Russia's gas too much, you will see how democracy hand over its own belly. Oh, you can have my belly, and then I want to fight you with my claws. That doesn't work. So you need to think how to design this whole future of international relations. You don't protest against Putin's human rights violation, and then, like Macron and Merkel has done, restructure the relations between Russia and European Union, making it more friendly. What does it mean? I mean, what is the strategic thinking here? The problem is all about a narrow vision. A sort of short-term thinking. We talked about it in、uh, different connections before, but still, I want to ask you: Why is a free Hong Kong、uh, or Hong Kong that at least there that were made in 1997? Why is it such a pain in the ass for the Chinese government? Why do they not just like give in on certain demands and say, "Okay, we have a contract. This is Hong Kong. It's different to mainland. You have your universal suffrage. No worries." Why do they take the risk of being blamed for destroying democracy, for breaking or breaching a contract? Why do they just don't care about all these things? What is the biggest threat that has been blossoming in in Hong Kong towards the Chinese regime? Because ideological conflicts or ideological competition is not a win-win situation. It's a zero-sum game. People want to have more rights. Everywhere in the world, and Chinese people have no political right. When they see Hong Kong, when they see Taiwan, and when you see how they elect their own representatives with fully consulted debate among the politicians, and they have to answer to the people in their district of their promises and etc. This is very attractive. It's a strong sort of attraction. Towards people who are ruled like subjects in mainland, and that will always pose an ideological threat to the Communist Party. And not to say that Hong Kong has always been a, a center where all the scandals of the central leaders are spreaded. You know, this Hong Kong independent bookstore—they publish all these books about. Current political elite in China. What do they do? What kind of property they own around the world? How rich they are, and etc. Corruption cases. And so as long as Hong Kong still serves as such a sort of freedom of speech example, there is no safety for Communist Party. Especially because one of the strategies of the regime in Beijing is they forward all the blames for being corrupt always to the lower levels of governance, right? And it's always the central governments,、uh, like the shiny spot within a bunch of bad officials, when their storyline, which says like like the central leaders are really fighting 
for the people to end this corruption on the lower government levels, uh, to make the party a servant for the people, blah, blah, blah. This is a real threat if there's suddenly more information coming out and making accessible for Chinese people about corruption on the, on the highest level of the government, which, way, which they always deny. Exactly. And, and I forgot to add to another, um, another important factor. We don't know. Actually, lots of people don't know. Hong Kong serves as the very important center for the Chinese Communist Party top elite family who export their interests to the West and vice versa. Hong Kong serves as such a convenient financial hub for the top elite to exchange interests with the Western elite. And it has to be politically fully under control. Otherwise, its top families and the Communist Party might find their property not much uh, protected because they could be exposed tomorrow. You know, some of the deals could be exposed tomorrow by local media or whatever. That, that's something they don't want. Coming back to the media situation, uh, when we were talking about Apple Daily, which has been, who decided to close down. So the only thing left is we basically have this, the South China Morning Post, an English language outlet, a very traditional newspaper, nearly 120 years operating in Hong Kong. And they used to be a very critical and a very investigative newspaper, right? I mean, like they were investigating in the mainland and they really did for many decades, they did a pretty good job, I think. And now, years ago, it has been sold already to a Beijing-friendly family. Before the handover, still, it was operating for more than 15 years, very critical on the mainland and on the policies. And then, 2015, the South China Morning Post has been sold to the Alibaba Group. Of course, a company like, or a group like Alibaba, I, I, I basically think they are not interested in to curb or the Post's desire to be investigative and critical, but it's a Chinese company. Yeah. If the Chinese government tells Alibaba, you better take care of the South China Morning Post, shut it up. They don't have any means actually to oppose that. Not only shut up about criticism, but also serving as a propaganda channel because South China Morning Post have international audience. Exactly. So it's as, as a brand, it's very valuable, right, for the Chinese government very, to keep yeah. it mm. because it has a certain credibility. And if they now take that brand and use it for their, uh, for their propaganda, a lot of people will think, well, still, it's still the South China Morning Post. So they use their credibility actually to, to spread their propaganda. There was, for example, uh, one of the columnists who withdrew two, three years ago. He was a British writer and long living in, in, in Hong Kong. He justifies his, his withdrawal by referring to an interview the Post did with Gui Min Hai, the Swedish publisher. He was one of the guys publishing books that were highly critical and gave away a lot of, of insights of the national leaders. Right, he was kidnapped from Thailand. And then he had to, to confess on national t Chinese TV that he has done something wrong, that he was colluding, blah, blah. And the South China Morning Post then, with the new ownership, well, three years already then, but, but with the Jack Ma ownership, with the Alibaba group, they also uh, interviewed Gui Min Hai. And basically, Gui Menhai just repeated all the claims he made on, on national TV. Well, normally you would expect the South China Morning Post to put his claims into a, a really critical perspective and actually confront him with, with the idea of, hey, come on, you've been forced to say these things. But that totally didn't happen. That was an indication, like the influence of the Chinese government on the South China Morning Post already. 
Another anecdote about this is that Gui Minghai later announced that he willingly gave up Swedish citizenship to re-become a Chinese citizenship. Can you believe that? No foreign citizenship can help you there. Exactly, that's the message, right? That's really textbook behavior of dictatorships. You're, you're not safe wherever you are and whoever you represent, you're not safe as long as you are Chinese origin. That's the message. Yeah, we already talked for a while. Maybe last bit of information contribution to the topic is that once the dictator, the totalitarian or dictatorship, authoritarian ideology takes over, start to control, there is no end. It will control every bit of the society. One of the things recently that stunned us is that uh, there is an LGBT documentary in Hong Kong that was pulled out from the film festival because the Hong Kong's Film Censorship Authority bans it. So in such a society, it's not just like about not criticizing Chinese government, not criticizing what the Communist Party has done, but also about following the whole set of values of authoritarian, totalitarian government, which is completely patriarchal, of course, all of them are. They banned LGBTQ movement. They banned women's rights. It's all the, the same pot. So once you allow the totalitarian or authoritarian government to win a battle, they will keep on winning. There you go. And everyone's life will be affected. Well, having said so, it's a very, very tragical and sad development that has been, well, for two years now and, and now... Uh, there's nearly nothing left of, of what was called the civil rights or the, the free spirit of Hong Kong. People are scared, pe people are intimidated. Or they are in jail. Which intimidates others to speak up. Mm. So, well, Hong Kong is, is a battleground that seems to be lost for the democratic parties in the world or representatives in the world. This is how it is and uh, we'll see how it goes on. Okay, Li Wen. talk to you soon. Bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. with chopsticks the truth about dictatorships a podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chanan